pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, my name is Sveva, S-V-E-V-A. All right. And now you're in Italy, correct? Yeah, I'm in Italy. I'm in Naples, which is in the south of Italy, actually. One of the first things, I, now you're an art collector, at least that's an art historian. This is by training. Um, so like, I always wonder, how do people become that in the first place? So were your parents creative? How your parents art historians? Like, how did you come to even having this interest in the arts? Sure. Actually, my father is an engineer. My mother is a journalist. And they didn't really have this artistic background, actually. But my mother has this conviction when we were very little, me and my brother, that every Sunday she was bringing us to a different museum in Naples to visit our city, really like to discover our city as a citizen, which was something very annoying <laughs> for us because we were kids and we wanted just to play in the park on a Sunday morning, especially like here in Naples. I mean, we have mostly like sunny days. So of course you want to always like enjoy to be out and to play as a kid. But still she was forcing us somehow. But then little by little, we started to enjoy because actually we were part of a group called Amici del Museo di Capodimonte. So Museo di Capodimonte, Capodimonte Museum is one of the most important uh, museums here in Campania, which is the region where we live, is in Naples. And it was actually the Reggia, so these uh, main uh, big, big villas, big, big buildings, uh, a palazzo that the Borbone family built at that time. And you have to know that in Capodimonte, they have the most important collection of porcelain, you know, porcellana all over the world because there was the industry, there was the usine, no? the, the fabric that was producing porcelain, a very pure type of porcelain over there. And in Capodimonte, you have this amazing bosco, this amazing park, where of course used to be horses, uh, you know, like very prince and princess way of living the park. But now it's an amazing park where you can enjoy the sun and you can enjoy the museum and all, and all the important collection of the museum. So we started to join this club of friends of Capodimonte Museum. We were kids. We were like 11, 10. And my brother was four, not even four. But then we get used to it. Um, and what we were doing at the end of the year with the Michi di Capodimonte, with the friends of the museum, was that every kid chose a church in Naples. In Naples, we are we have like thousands of church, given all the different domination we have in all the period of last centuries. And so each kid decided to choose a church and to have it as a kid somehow, you know, as heritage. And we, there were like these open days for museum here in Naples back then. Now it seems a very like far things from us. Very, very strange thought. But anyway, so we were explaining the history of the church to the visitors, to the passers-by. We were even like saying to people in the street, come, come inside the church. We have to tell you something about the church that you don't know. So really like get people curious about something that it's every day over there. I mean, it's a church. I mean, people are always in the street here in Naples. So you pass by a church and you 
don't even like look at the building, look at the facade, look at the material they're built of. And each material, each form that the facade is made of tells you the story, tells you the story of that area, tells you the story of the prince or the princess that commissioned this church. And then if you enter inside, oh my God, there is like an entire universe of um, of relationship, of materials, of uh, richesse and whatever that you will never know if you don't even like enter inside the church. So I think that this, for me, personally, was the first encounter with art. And that's from where I started, you know. It was so very, like, familiar, personal encounter with this group of friends of the museum. And then, of course, I did the classical lyceum here in Naples. So, so classical lyceum means that you study Greek, you study Latin, and you're more focused in the humanistic part of each topic. And, of course, I was pretty much focused in history of art as well. But still, it was everything was really like historical and traditional. And then I decided to do for my master. So I did for the first three years, design and fashion and architecture as well at the university. And then I changed because I had a professor who was truly like inspired. It was like this type of professor that challenge you a lot you know and I was this type of student that wants this type of things you know wants to be challenged wants to discover more wants to have a trigger you know in order to be like pushed to do more you know I was kind of like a perfectionist somehow so I really like like this type of professor so anyway he was professor of history of art but he has also like this relationship with cinema so I was always into art, but still into an art that was intersectional, you know, somehow. It was really like multidisciplinary. It was really like not not only my interest in art, it has never been only in art for itself. It has always been art and something else. And so for the first three years at the university it was art and cinema. So I was really like intrigued by the relationship between art and cinema and especially I was drawn by Le Nouveau Realisme. So I was really like obsessed by Jean-Luc Godard. I was obsessed. Really like he was my, I was a maniac about him and about all of his films. I had still in my parents' house these old chapters of Histoire du Cinéma. I don't know if you are like familiar with this. Familiar, but not well versed. <laughs> Exactly. So I had, I mean, all of the chapter of Histoire du Cinéma, which really like tells you chapters, different chapter of different period of history that he was like reenacting, but like didascalically, you know, in his films, especially in this movie, uh, Histoire du Cinéma. And then I decided to do a specialization in history of art, still in Naples, in a different university, where I had the opportunity as well to do an exchange in France and then in, in Brussels, in Belgium. So I was kind of like developing, you know, my, my conception and my notion of history of art, uh, dealing with the French part as well, which was completely different. I noticed that, I mean, being an Italian studying history of art, I was not studying uh, a part of history that was uh, pretty much connected with the, with the French history of art. And I think that pretty much in Europe, you have this sort of shift everywhere. Maybe if I would have gone in Prague or in Germany, I would have studied a different part of history of art that I didn't study being an Italian, you know? 
So I was pretty much, you know, reaching my parkour, you know, my, my path of studies. But then still I noticed that uh, there was a lack of contemporary art. I mean, being a student, an Italian student, and then a Neapolitan student, here, maybe you know, maybe you don't, uh, we are pretty much, being art historian, pretty much into Baroque, into Caravaggio, into Rococo, into Rubens, in all of these masters. And then there is death. It's, it's finished. It's the end of the time. It's the end of the era. It's the end of the history of art. There is nothing afterwards. So we had like a couple of professors who once, I remember, like the most avant-garde lesson that I had was a monography, so still a monography, talking about monography, about Picasso. That, the end of the time, that's it, nothing else. So being like 20, I, I don't even remember how old I were. I mean, I was like 22, 23, I don't remember. But I wanted to know something about what's going on when I was 22. I mean, there weren't artists at that time. Of course there were, but they weren't subject at the university. So my experience of contemporary art at that time was being a self-taught. I was a tradition. I was like a, an art historian, but I, I know nothing about contemporary art. So I start to go in contemporary art galleries, which here in Naples, Again, we have a very strong and old tradition of contemporary art galleries. You should remember that Lucio Amelio, which is one of the god of the first gallery, I mean, maybe he, he even invented being a gallerist, maybe didn't exist as a profession before him, Lucio Amelio, I'm talking about. He was from here, from the region, and he brought here artists like Andy Warhol, uh, like Joseph Boyce. I mean, all of the very important artists of the 70s, of the 60s, and whatever. And he started the gallery really like near my home, where, where I live now with my husband, which is like in Piazza dei Martiri. And it's in a very ancient and historical building. It was a very like tiny, tiny it was an apartment, actually, where he invited artists. And of course, for artists like Andy Warhol or, or uh, even uh, Joseph Boyce, it was kind of like exotic, you know, to be here in Naples and to visit Vesuvio and to visit Reggio di Caserta, all of these grandeur uh, palazzos that were telling you a story of kind of like an ancient empire of Renaissance, you know, all, all this very important part of our history, you know. And so I started to go in, in the galleries and I discovered a world. I mean, all of a sudden I said, oh, my God, there is art coming up, you know, while I, while I am leaving. And I was pretty surprised. But, but I, I mean, I was like completely fascinated by it. It had so strong appeal on me that I couldn't like I mean, really like I couldn't stop. And that's what's the start of my career. Let's say my path in, in contemporary art. I was completely like into it and what I valued the most was the dialogue that I could have with the gallerist and with the artist at that time and it's also how I started my relationship with my husband you know if you want to know some gossips this is the gossip for me I mean like really it was a human relationship that we started because we had of course we had some friends in common but then the first appointment that we had, it was in a museum 
because we had, ah, okay, you are interested in contemporary art. Yes, I'm studying it. Okay, I can bring you to a show. That's how it all started. And now it's more than 10 years that we are together. And our passion, our main passion that really like keep us together is art. And I always say is that if it wouldn't have been like this, if it would have become like a lover, you know, something like a third person in our relationship, because it's really like this. Instead, sharing this passion is like having a baby that we are nurturing every day, feeding, giving, you know, milk and food, taking care of it and trying every day to understand how we can do it better, how can we can develop new relationship with artists, with creators, with galleries all over the world. So that's how it started, the collection that we somehow inherited from his father as well, that he was pretty big collector, pretty like, uh, yeah, into art from his era, actually. So he started to collect artists from the Transavanguardia movement, Nouveau Realiste, uh, yeah, I mean, like, realism movement, so, I mean, artists that were saying something at the time he was living was really like, they were really like contemporary artists. And the very important thing as well about these artists was that they were not afraid of saying something, even politically incorrect. I mean, they didn't give a damn about saying something that was against the state or against the tradition, you know, they were pretty much against everything that was traditional and normal and politically covered, yes, I dare say. And so really like we we thought that this was a very interesting line to take as a collection. And so when we started to, let's say, recollect 10 years ago, we decided that pretty much we all do the same. So we valued a lot i mean having uh, the possibility to collect artists that have our age that are alive and that are saying something about the now i mean what's happening really like today and even like tomorrow or like yesterday not like an artwork that too much project itself in an eternal future that we could not really like perceive and uh, think about and project Uh, I mean we want to know something about the time we are living now because I think that what will be left after us I think the collection will uh, keep his life forever will be the narrative of this time so people will visit our collection or will hear the story of our collection and I think that pieces by pieces they will create the narrative of that time they will say, oh, okay, so these people were collecting this type of work. So it was happening this at that time. So that's why, I mean, for example, there is this artist, Sinfuen Zube, that depicts the human figure with this type of, of shape, with this type of form, adding this texture. You know, it tells you something about, as well, you know, how the market was going on at that time. And I think that I mean, it's so, it's so powerful that you cannot, like, commit to collect something else. But, of course, this is my very personal opinion. I don't have to say that this is, like, it has to be for all the collector of contemporary arts, of course. No, this entire conversation is your personal opinion. You are not talking on behalf of anyone else, yeah. just to be clear. 
Okay, but you just brought up the market. Now, you at one point you did work at a gallery, correct? Yeah, I was running a contemporary gallery for six years, actually. So after I graduated, I sent my my CV to this gallery that was that I was pretty much interested in because the program was very strong and politically engaged, and it's a gallery in Modica in Sicily. And I started as an assistant the first year, and then I decided to join as a partner of gallery. It was an amazing experience, and I learned so much in these six years, because the focus of the gallery was not only in the political engaged artists, but really like how the artists can have a relationship with the community. So every time we were inviting an artist in the gallery in Modica in Sicily, we were asking as well, of course, if the artist wanted to involve the community, to engage a dialogue with the community. And I think that it was so enriching, not only for the gallery and the artists, but also for the community, that at the end of the game, I mean, people from Modica, I mean, Sicilian, were thinking that we were kind of like a pro loco, you know, like a no-profit organization <laughs> rather than a commercial gallery, because we were doing something that uh, was easy to understand for them as well. I mean, because they were doing it with us. You know, for example, we did this performance with Marinella Senatore, which is an Italian artist, and she's a performative artist. So what we did, we did a musical with the entire community of Modica. So we do, we did like an open call trying to involve people that were dealing with music, with dance, with theater, with traditional things like puppets. You know, in Sicily, we have this very, very old tradition of puppets with puppets, so very like, you know, high art and low art. I mean, really like high knowledge and low knowledge, very popular knowledge, but very like artistic, philosophical knowledge. There were also like historians that were talking about history of the specific characters of the Sicilian history of that little town, which is Modica. So, I mean, very, again, very intersectional project, but then at the end it was super emotional because you were together with the community and the artist was not this deus ex machina that was deciding ah oh, you do this you do that no it was like completely the opposite she was saying you say me what you want to do inside the musical and then we're going to do it together everyone together so it was really like pretty much empowering you know because if you give people the stage to do something where in which they truly believe boom it's like an explosion really at the end of the performance i was kind of like doing the project managing stuff so organizing all the people like mad with the police with the local administration you know doing all of this bureaucracy i was in charge of it the most boring part i was in charge so i was pretty much stressed you know because of course i mean the only people that were not like of course understanding what we were doing was the police you know was the local administration that were giving me all of this paper to sign and then at the end of the day while we were doing the performance they were were not doing their duty you know i was doing it for them so why i sign all of these papers if you're not doing what you signed but anyway let's forget about this the most important thing at the end was that at the end of this musical, we built, I mean, we didn't even build because we had this amazing uh, dome 
in the lower part of the city because Modica is has got like an upper part and a lower part. It's like cave, so you have terraces, so you, you have an upper part and a lower part. And in this lower part, there is the m- most important dome of the city, which is Duomo di San Pietro, San Peter's Dome. And on the stairs of this dome, we built uh, somehow our stage where there was this entire orchestra of adolescents, so people from like 12 till 30, 30 something years old, so pretty young, that were performing this original soundtrack made by the people of Modica called as well a person from, I don't remember, Catania or even Palermo that came and brought this machine that makes snow. And so we were like, uh, it was 9th, 10th of August in Sicily. Do you understand Sicily, 10th of August? So we're pretty hot, actually. Yeah, hot and humid. And it was snowing. And it was snowing with this orchestra. I mean, it was pretty much, it was something. I mean, I will remember for all my life. Of course, people, I mean, were were getting like super emotional and I of course I was crying because for me it was kind of like a success because I arrived at the end of it you know without the police arresting me or whatever you understand po- the power of art when it's without any filter when it's really like straightforward and tries to involve you even though you know nothing about it theoretically speaking, you know, you know nothing about relational art, about all of these uh, psychoanalysis inside, of course, the process that the artists initiate. You know nothing about it, but it's good. It's super good because you really like, you purely, you know, interact with the core of it. And I think it was a huge success, huge success. Yeah, it's very common complaint that I hear about sort of, I'll sort of put in air quotes, like fine arts, the sort of barrier to entry for people who are not either trained or, or knowledgeable of it, that some people feel it's unapproachable, whether it's galleries or museums or performances, that that's a very difficult thing for a lot of the public to figure out how to even find a way to start to engage in it. So like, for instance, my wife, uh, she was not raised with art. It was nothing. And so like more or less I've been her filter to try and sort of get her into it and sort of slowly get her sort of more interested in it. And it's a, it's a very difficult thing and it takes many years oftentimes for people and, and cultures and communities to sort of, um, grow into sort of a, a getting past that barrier to entry. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much what you say. I, I mean, being a collector now, it's a lot of time and being pretty active on social media. I have a lot of people who ask me, ah, but Veva, how can I start a collection? Because, I mean, it's frightening, you know, to go in galleries and to ask for prices, even to ask, like, the meaning of the work or whatever the story is behind it. And I said, I mean, first of all, the first step is, like, don't be afraid to ask because, I mean, the question will never be silly. I mean, we don't have silly question. We have silly answer, maybe. I've had some circumstances where I've gone into galleries and they and I've been like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how much this is. And they were like, and they would say like, I'm sorry, who are you? And they, they would like question who I was before they would even be willing to give me the price as in like sort of like I was being interviewed as to whether I'm worthy to even know the value of this thing. So it does happen that the, that bear, I understand where that barrier comes in and I understand why people, some people are very sort of 
scared of that issue. But it's not the most common thing. It it only it's only happened to me a few times in my life. So I hope that it's getting better. Yeah, it's a very common attitude that, that galleries have mostly like lately, you know, to have this kind of a snob and a posh attitude towards anyone that is not in their circle. It's a hard balance because like on the one hand, it makes them feel more exclusive, which sort of elevates their status in some ways. But in other ways, it often could turn away people who could potentially become sure. longtime collectors or big collectors over time. And so like, it's a, it's a difficult balance to ride being a gallery owner this day and age. Sure, sure, because you never know who is going to like step into your gallery. I mean, I mean, rich people or people that can afford art do not have like a label, a tag on their shirt saying, I'm a rich person, I'm going to buy you the entire gallery. I'm going to get the, like the show sold out. You don't have it. Like with me, I mean, being a gallerist for six years, uh, doing art fairs all over the world, but really like all over the world in New York, in, in Basel, in Paris, in London. You never know. I was never questioning these people. I was always like willing like to speak with them. And then, of course, then little by little to investigate if they were really interested about the work and the artists and then starting this communication because you can have a super rich person that comes into your booth with one euro clothes. I mean, rich. most of the time, rich people are like this. Eh? I mean... You are uh, an example of it. <laughs> I used to work at Banana Republic, uh, the yeah, clothing yeah. store. And when I first started working there, I was a clientele specialist. So I was a sort of personal shopper. And one of the people that I worked for said, okay, you have to learn the shoes and handbags. So like when a customer walks in, you judge them off of whether their shoes and their handbags are any good. And if they're any good, then they're going to theoretically spend a lot of money. And I was like, fuck you. That's a stupid idea because there are lots of people with excellent taste, lots of money that do not want to show their wealth off in their the way they present themselves in the street. Yeah. So like you cannot judge you know, theoretically, like a book by its cover kind of a thing. And it ended up like some of my best clients who would spend $10,000 in Banana Republic were people that came in in shorts and flip-flops. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You never know. You never know. All right. But the reason why I asked about you working at a gallery is that I find this this sort of balance thing uh, very interesting because generally collectors don't also work in galleries. So like, how do you find that the the sort of the nature of the art market, having worked on the gallery side, as well as being on the collector side, are you still happy with, let's say, like the way the market works these days? <laughs> I'm not very happy about it. I'm not very happy about it because, I mean, uh, pre-COVID, I think that we were all running at a very fast pace that it was unsustainable for all of us. I mean, for all of us, all the actors of the art system. And I think that this fast pace affected the quality of the work we were seeing on the market, let's be honest. And I've heard this from a lot of art advisors as well, from New York. So, I mean, not like a super conceptual, whatever French advisor that wants to see abstract painting and, and French abstract painting, and that's it. But a New Yorker art advisor that was saying, listen, Sveva, I cannot buy and I cannot suggest and advise any more artworks because they are like so much low quality. Because, of course, the artists were in this loop of 
hyperproduction that was nothing to do about quality, you know. Instead, now I have to say that we were forced to slow down everything. And uh, I've done, I don't know how many studio visits lately. And the quality is exceptional, has risen, I think, that more than 100%. It's really like uh, it's something that tells you a lot about how the system that we were all supporting before was inconceivable anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like to a certain extent, you know, I've worked in the the gallery system. I've worked in museums. I've worked in academia. I've done a little bit of everything in the industry. It's broken, but I can't seem to figure out what would be a better version of it. Do you? So, like, so what I'm asking you, I guess, is what would you, how would you like it to be constructed? So, let's say the entire slate was wiped clean. How would you construct the arts industry, the arts market to benefit everybody? Yeah, I think this is a big question. This is like the $1 million question. I don't have the answer. I mean, no, I have my opinion still. And I think it's very simple. I mean, it's very simple because, I mean, the simplest thing, people don't do it. I mean, <laughs> if it's simple, okay, forget about it. I will, I will do the complicated way. But still, I mean, I think that it's simple because we have to focus on artists, you know. So I think that what we lost in the pre-COVID, or I mean, like still is not so much like this, is the centrality of the artist. We should really, like every one of us, put the artist at the center of this system and try to understand what to do in order to enable them to produce better, to produce in a more sustainable way, in a more innovative way really like trying to using technology as well in order to help them to produce better and to produce in a more also like in a way that they are more aware of what they're living right now and what we are all living you know because of course if you see it from the collector's point of view what i like in a work of art is the way it investigates the period we are living, you know, and it investigates in a way that unveil me something that I cannot find in the news broadcasts, you know, a story that somehow maybe mass media do not want that I know, you know, something that is hidden, you know, something that is like a secret that the majority of people do not have to know. And I want to see in art uh, an alternative, you know, another way, another perspective to see the world. I want that an artwork let me dream, you know. I don't want, like, to to sound too romantic, but still I think that we need some romance in our life. And I think that art can give this to us in a very direct and straightforward way. So so what I would like that will change will be really like this, giving the possibility to the artist to be an artist, you know, to, to have the time to be in their studio and just have the time to think, just have the time to do research, just have the time to speak with me, you know, and to being a collector, being a gallist, being a curator, and to confront themselves, you know, saying, Asveva, I'm doing this research, you know, I'm using this material to do that. What do you think about it, you know? 
And sometimes it helps a lot, you know, this confrontation, this comparison, this nurturing dialogue between human beings. Because instead, if you don't have the time to do this anymore, I think that we lose the most important part of the work of art, which is sharing process at the end. It's a sharing process, you know, sharing knowledges, sharing researches, sharing thoughts, sharing fears about everything that we are living for. And then I think another issue now, which is something that is going up recently, it's the echo sustainability of the art system, you know. We have to go green as well. It's not something that, that do not affect us because, of course, our work is impacting as well on our world, on the earth. So there is this growing green coalition between galleries that I highly recommend to look into it and to try to have more info from them which is affecting all of us. And also lately, even Philips, the auction house, joined this Green Coalition, which I found that it's something that is like so evident as well. Again, it's, it's just a simple choice. I mean, it's not like a question. Do I have to join the Green Coalition? Of course you have. Still you're thinking about it? sign it and that's it i mean you don't even have to do a lot of research it's so evident it's so simple that we all have to do this in order in order to survive guys in order to survive in order to live a happy and healthy life for all of us okay i want to go back a second you were talking about the like the connectedness that you have when you get to have the time to talk with an artist and and sort of listen to them and give feedback and this kind of stuff and it sort of dawned on me like that to me is a substantially better way to connect with artwork than the contemporary thing, which is, of course, artist statements, which I have a real problem with in, as a general whole. But so like from a collector standpoint, I totally get the idea that like connecting with, discussing with, giving feedback would be exponentially more engaging and sort of a... Uh, nurturing of the whole relationship of like collector and artist kind of thing more so than a written statement so like i guess the in the end the question is like how do you feel about artist statements as a whole artist statement written by artist or i'm oh, I, well that well that's actually a sort of a sub question of it like should they be written by the artist or can they be written by a curator or some other ghost writer or whatever I think that artists cannot really like write their own artist statement somehow because they, <laughs> because they are like too much into the work and it's something so personal and so I mean it's like uh, being naked you know somehow like when an artist accomplished an artwork uh, at the end is giving you part of his body part of his soul so and then his role his duty is finished I think that is the role of curators and art critics to write well-written artist statement. And it's, it's a thing that I was asking to artists a lot of time, actually. And there was a question as well for 
award we conceived with a collective of artists, Apparatus 22, they are a Romanian collective. And we asked them, what do you want as an award to be? And they said, ah, you know, Sveva, I mean, of course the acquisition is important. It's like the first act of appreciation from a collector's part of a work. But then what we would really love would be well-written text by a curator. So actually our award, which is called Because of Many Sons, which is going to be with the Artorama Art Fairs in Marseille at the end of August, will not be only the acquisition of a work inside the art fair, but also our curator, Carolina Schulte, which is the creator of the award, will start the dialogue with the artist that is going to be the winner of the award and will try, I mean, in a long period of time, it will be like a long-term commission for her to write a text about the artistic practice and to let this text be useful for the artist for a long period. So to not like use this text for one week and then it's going to be like not useful anymore, but still try really like to be to go in deep in the work of the artist and try to deliver him or her pretty much consistent text about their artistic practice. I mean, most of the time when I read artist statement from artists that are really like just graduating from the academia, my God, I mean, poor them. I mean, they, it means, I think that it means that they have no one that tells us, listen, you cannot write this sort of things on the paper. Write it for you on your diary, for your agenda, for your journal, but not like to the public, you cannot deliver this sort of text, you know? It's going to affect it bad your work at the end. Well, see, okay, I'm again, I'm from academia. I understand. There, I feel like there sort of are different art statement or art statements that artists can create like there's one that can be written for the general public to engage them emotionally and and expressively and all this kind of stuff but then in academia it, like there's academic journals and um you know institutional exhibitions and these kinds of things and they need they almost need like a different artist statement that's much more intellectual much more sort of putting your work into an oeuvre so that you sort of see the context in the canon of how they fit in so you know, that's a different artist statement and so like what i find difficult about artist state the, just the term artist statement as a whole again in air quotes is that we as practitioners of creating art are generally not very good writers and yet we're expected to be able to not only produce our whatever in some elegant way then we're also expected to be able to eloquently write about it not just once but probably like in three different ways like to a collector why is my work you know potentially valuable or important to you and your collection versus the general public versus an institution it's too much it's just way too much work like, I, I mean, it's hard enough just to make really engaging and interesting and evocative work. <laughs> then I also have to be able to like write about it eloquently in to, to different formats, depending on the need. It's just, I wish that the, 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 the system would allow for, for instance, curators to legitimately write these statements on our behalf and just like accept that because it's exhausting for me. 
Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really exhausting. And then you had very like famous example. I mean, Jerry Saltz was an artist at the beginning, and he was a very bad artist actually. So then he turned in a very good writer. <laughs> so what a better example? I mean, it's one of the art critics that, of course, can be criticized a lot, but still that I admire because he says what he thinks. That period. That's it. And I pretty much value these sort of art critics because, I mean, for me, if we want to talk about art critics, it's like, boom, it's like a big, big issue. And especially like being Italian, there is no more art critic. Art critic is that for me. I mean, we don't even have like, if I have to be honest and coherent with myself, not even a magazine in Italy that talks properly that talks properly about contemporary art with the right language. It doesn't mean that you write, uh, it's conceptual, uh, it's pervasive, whatever installation means that you are describing well the work. We are, you are only using some very like difficult words, one near the other, and that's it. I'm not understanding anything. You're understanding maybe less or maybe more. I don't know. The general public is understanding nothing and they're maybe thinking what they're writing about yeah art criticism has been moved over to the general masses through likes on social media like that's the thing that now unfortunately defines whether something is quote-unquote successful or not or popular or not and and art criticism is incredibly useful and necessary in many ways but it's also a pain in the ass because it's it's more or less the gatekeepers like the, the, the critics, like if, if a critic doesn't like you as a person, even if you make amazing art, they can write a bad review and your career screwed. And so like, it's a really difficult relationship. But they do not have to know you personally. It would I be think. marvelous, but unfortunately most of them ask to yeah. also do interviews or meet yeah. you and stuff like this. And so like, it's yeah. a very, our industry is very difficult because it's not just does is your like for for me it would be like is your art great and are you a good person in the same way that you like you as a collector like you, you have to not only amass a great collection but you should be a good person you know it's like if you're an ass i don't want my work in your collection sure sure no no that's true that's true that's true but somehow you know art critics has another role another duty they should be in a way even more objective than all of us because they have to should be they should be because they have to write history you know they have to write somehow with a good perspective what we are living right now but with a critical point of view you know with not only like accepting what is correct or what is not correct but even like giving their opinion because i mean they have read more than us they have some knowledge that of course we do not have because we don't do not do it every day that will give us another interpretation you know of the work that will be like important that will last somehow maybe it will last forever i mean like being an art historian vasari of course, you know, maybe Vasari. Vasari has written the most important biography of all the artists of the 14th century. And he was really like given, uh, I think he was pretty objective person. He was not like so to the personal side. Of course, he was like more into maybe Raffaello rather than whatever. But still, uh, he was trying really like to give you 
like the vision of that time giving you all the characters you know there was the there was his and there was that and they were doing this and that and there was like a context you know so they, and he was like criticizing as well instead now it's really like or it's politically correct or it's not and uh, there are like these words about I mean how can a comment about a work of art could be nice come on let's cancel this word from our vocabulary it's not a word to comment contemporary art nice are you kidding me are you serious nice yeah cute is the word I hate cute is even worse oh my god (laughs) cute whatever cute, cute can Forget be anything a, a baby is cute a work of a art is cute yeah. a park is a cute whatever like it's the most nondescript word i fucking hate that word exactly 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 i mean it's a matter of language as you were saying before you you sh- we should all really like put new meaning in old words you know there are a lot of words that really like lost their meaning like for example installation, freedom, female artists, oh my God, race, black artist. There are all of these like transgender, whatever, LBGT, whatever letters you want to put inside it. Well, I, I have to admit, okay, no, I take the position and maybe I'm just old. I mean, I'm 47, so I'm of an older generation. I'm 31. I'm 31. Congratulations. I'm not that young. Well, you're younger than me. You're a gener- easily a generation <laughs> younger than me. But right. as much as I respect the these groups, these this is LGBTQ plus, the 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 black, the all these different sort of subgroups of stuff. I I okay. I, what it was is I went and I taught in the Middle East. I was in the United Arab Emirates and I was teaching Muslim women uh, primarily at university about art. And like so that was the thing. And they kept defining themselves as my work is about a Muslim woman. And I'm like, why do we have to differentiate? Why can't it just be your work is good? That's it. Like, and it doesn't matter that you're a woman and it doesn't matter that you're Muslim and it doesn't matter. Like, it's just quality of work, merit, you know, and and craftsmanship and whatever other word you want to put to it. And I feel like these sub-segregating little groups is actually hurting the arts world because now we're, we're separating. Like, you know, I'm sure I haven't met any of these people, but I'm sure there are people that like only buy LGBTQ work or only by work by black Americans or or Africans or whatever. And, and, and I know people that only collect Asian art. So let me, I, I know this has existed, but I feel like as a whole, as a community, as the arts world, it's, it's dangerous because it's, it's really separating us instead of bringing us together. I totally agree with you. No, I totally agree with you because I mean, it's giving like people and artists really like labels, you know, you segregate them again and even more, I think, you know, now we have seen a lot, I mean, shows about black American artists, African artists, but only like this, as you said, subgroup of people, very interesting word, subgroup of people being gathered together. But we do not see that much 
a show about art, a show with artists that are connected because there is a concept that they are developing in different ways, but still there is the work that holds the concept and the context, you know, working together. So of being a woman, of course, I want to support women artists. Of course, I want 100%. In fact, I mean, in our collection, Majority of artists are women, but not because we chose it from the beginning, but because maybe we have a sensibility that connects with this type of work. And I'm talking about the work, not the artist being a gender of whatever, you know. And so what I always say also with the curatorial project that I do is that I'm not inviting you because you are a woman or because you are black. I'm inviting you because I'm interested in your work. And I think that can have a good connection with the concept I have in mind, you know? Like, for example, I'm curating a show in early June in a gallery in Vienna, and I've invited two artists, one from the United States and one from South Africa, And then I ask them to invite another artist. Each of them is inviting another artist. So I really like try to push them to perpetuate this concept of inclusion, you know, that has to come from from artists itself as well. And it has worked pretty good, actually. And then at the end, I mean, artists from very different continents, America, really like New York, this uh, New York State, and then uh, two of them are from New York State, and then the other two of them are from South Africa. One is from Johannesburg and one from Pretoria. Pretoria, come on, it's a very peripheral place. But they, in this concept, in this dialogue that we are developing that is around collective nostalgia, they found a lot of things in common at the end. So there was pretty much most of the things that they had in common rather than the things that were dividing them. Being from, I mean, two of them are black. doesn't matter at all, I mean, at the end of the day. Yes, it's difficult. I mean, there's no resolve for it. I mean, every, there's always the desire to have in-groups and out-groups and, you know, give priority to people of similar whatevers. It's, yeah, it's just human nature, sadly. But, uh, but I wish we didn't sort of continue to sub-segregate the arts because we're already a niche thing within the world. And then to like sub-niche us seems a bit ridiculous. Like it seems like we're yeah. hurting ourselves more than we're helping ourselves. Yeah, yeah, it seems. But I think that it's also like, of course, you know, art is always the reflection of our society. So, of course, we are reflecting what's, what is happening uh, out there. And I think that sociologically speaking, this process still has to be radicalized, you know. It really has to reach a peak and then maybe it will be like less stressed out and less like so division and so like into subgrouping all of these type of people, of human beings we have. But at the end of the day, I think that Art should really like try instead of being what art is. So really like trying to overcome boundaries, to be like, I mean, when I am in my house, I have the, always the feelings to be in China and then at the same time in Brazil and then at the same time questioning about gender equality and Afro-American art. If I mean, I can look around and I can tell you about all of these different stories 
and I'm in Naples. I mean, there is no boundaries at the end. So that's what I like. I don't understand why we have to, again, that already exists, we have to build wall. We have to destroy this wall instead of building it again and again, more stronger. It's difficult with all the nationalism that's going on throughout the world right now, but hopefully we will transcend all that in time. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's be positive. Let's be positive. Got to, or else this whole industry is soul crushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the artist side, not from a collector side, you just have fun and buy really cool stuff. That's great fun. But a little bit of sort of nuts and bolts, sort of like the way you do things. Now, okay, when you go out and you're buying works or looking, just looking at work, maybe you're not buying, I don't even know how you do all this, but do you like, are you more of like a patron? Do you buy numerous pieces from a single artist or do you buy like just the one piece that moves you the most? Um, you know, or do you potentially like, is the idea of sort of the traditional patronage a thing that you either have done or are thinking of doing? Like, so how do you go about doing all this? Yeah. So when we don't know the artist, we start to buy artwork that is somehow for us it's representative of their work so we start like this and then if we really like getting to the work of the artist we continue to buy the same artist different things from the same artist and it has happened to us a lot during these last 10 years i think that the things of the the patrons we do it not in the acquiring uh, part we do it uh, more in all the parallel projects we do as collector you know we like trying to engage our community in supporting the artist not only like in acquiring work also in supporting them when they they do exhibition when they need to have a support in the production or for example like this award or all of the activity we do on our instagram account we really like try to be not like millennials of course i do not feel like a millennial so much still i have to keep on doing it and i found it like funny and engaging and so this is the method, I mean, we use, of course, during this last period that's happened a lot that we found interesting artists on Instagram, for example. So we contacted them and then we had virtual studio visit and then the artist is represented by a gallery and we go through the gallery in order to buy the work at the end. But it's always like, you know, after you collect for 10 years, I mean, the most important part for you is not at the end acquiring the work, you know. It's being part of the process that that is behind the work. I mean, you have to have another trigger, you know, in order to be like uh, challenged and excited about something that is new. You know, of course, for me, it's always like super fascinating to know the work through the world of the artist. For me, it's like the plus. The plus that I can have is like speaking with the artist because it always, I mean, it has never, I mean, maybe I'm a lucky person. I don't know. It has never happened to me that after a discussion with an artist, I was disappointed or I wasn't like leaving the conversation with something new, with a topic to look at, you know, because artist gives you input, you know. 
So I always like felt in, enriched and felt, ah, you know, Francesco is the name of my husband. You know, Francesco, we have to look at this and to go there to see this and maybe to read this book and not this other book. And I mean, this is like the part that I most like. And then at the end, of course, what's the suggestion and the advice I always give to collectors that start? is never try to skip the gallery, please. I mean, try always when, of course, the artist is represented by some galleries to buy through the galleries. Because we, we, I mean, the art system is a system and it's an economical system. So, of course, in order to support this economy, you have to support each part of it and not skipping one. Instead, everything will, like, collapse. Instead, I see that Nowadays, um, there are a lot of collectors that then in the end, they reveal themselves to be flippers that buy directly from the artist. They do not even like finish the academia, these artists. They buy them before for really like nothing. And then they flip it on auction houses. These artists, they didn't have like one show in a gallery. Come on, how can you do something like that? And then you have ruined the artist's career forever. I mean, how they can survive? How they can survive afterwards? And then you have a a whole generation of artists that are super scared about collectors, about having relationship with collectors, because they do not know if you're going to be the next flipper. And how can you assure them? I mean, of course, having a personal relationship with time, with demonstrating them that you're not this type of person. As you said, you have to be a good person. I think that you have to be a good person as a collector. And most of it, you have to have a ethic. You have to have an ethical code that you have to follow. You have to have 10 points in front of you, 10 points to be a good collector in order to really like participate in the sustainability of the system. Okay, wait, do you have like an Excel spreadsheet for this? What are these 10 points? I love an organizational chart. I mean, I cannot reveal now everything because of course- Okay, five, give me five points. (laughs) Because, you know, it's part of my, you know, being a millennial and being so active on social media. I reveal them once upon a time, you know, it's not like, it's not for free, come on. No, I'm joking. I will reveal, I mean, the points that I think that are most like important that you can share with the, with your amazing public. First of all, as I was saying you previously, is always buy through galleries. Always buy through galleries if the artist is represented by, by galleries. Second one of all, if you buy an artwork from a young artist, do not sell it on, on auction before at least five years, it's really like the minimum, the minimum five years before reselling the work, it's the minimum. And I strongly, this is a suggestion to gallerists. I strongly suggest to gallerists to let collectors sign contract resale agreement to do not resell the work at least before five years. That is very important. And then be coherent. I think that coherence has to deal a lot with collecting nowadays. So be coherent with yourself. If in your daily life, you're not a flipper, I mean, you're not like exploiting people and then the next day you're selling them on uh, the gossip, whatever, 
do it as well on your arty life be coherent be consistent and then the fourth advice that i can give you it's that collectors have a big responsibility big 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 responsibility so be aware that you have a role a pretty consistent and important role in, in the art system so whatever you do is going to affect all the other actors of the art system so be pretty much aware of what you are doing i mean do not do things without even thinking all right so a little apology, technical problem, different microphone. So now the sound quality is going to change rather dramatically. So please continue. Yeah, I'm sorry for it. But of course, technology is always an issue. So I was like at the fourth point. So saying that nowadays, more than ever, collector has a big, big responsibility being in the contemporary artwork system. So being aware of it, uh, he lets you do choices that are somehow responsible for, for the artists, for the galleries, and for all the system. So let's keep this in mind when we buy a work. I think it's very important. It's not that we... I mean, we're not like shopping bags or clothes. So we're shopping something that has got a value inside it and it's got a value for our society. It can also like change if you see it on a bigger vision, our society. So let's be very aware of what we are buying and the decision we are making in buying it. Because I always say that, of course, I mean... Uh, Art is a luxury item, you know, we are buying a luxury item that has got a market value. So market is really present when we buy something in auction, I mean, in gallery spaces, when we buy a work of art. But at the end, there are no rules written for this value, you know. There is no, I mean, there is no abecedario, there is no vocabulary, there is no finance rule or regulation that tells you this worth has this value now and in five years it will increase of this percent for this reason and that reason. You know, the variables are too many to determine this. It's pretty much a roller coaster when we see auction, for example. I mean, like lately I've seen this auction uh, with Philips like two days ago and there was like one or two artists that were like uh, reaching the millions and then all the others were like uh, navigating, you know, somehow. But maybe, I mean, the, the quality of the work was as much as the one that reached a million. What is the criterion? What is the criteria behind it? Uh, I cannot tell you as well that I'm inside the art world now. It's so many years. It's really like something that change all the time and predictably, you know. So you cannot only buy the work of art as an investment. Of course, it's always an investment, you know. That and this, it's inside like these uh, ten points. Uh, never buy a work of art only for investment because it will never return you back. Art will never give you back something if you don't give first. You know, it's an exchange. It's not that you are exploiting art to earn I don't know how many monies for um, something that you buy. I mean. I know collectors now that are buying a lot of works from African artists from, believe me, it's true, 80, 70 euro. 
because now they they think that they gonna flip it in auction in one year in two years and gonna value it will be like the next amoaco boafo you know there is this fuss about discovering and being the talent scout of the next amoaco boafo that is not good i mean it's not good for art it's not good for artists it's not good for you as a collector because having this method will never will never will never will never bring you to the next amoaco boafo believe me this this is true that i can tell you 100% so instead if you really like buy what you like and what you think can add you something to your life it can really like challenge you every day when you look at it this will always repay you of the money you invested you know and will you will never like say oh my god I, you will never regret it you know to have bought it at that time so it's a win win you know having this attitude being a collector is a win win instead if you only like see the investment part i think most of the time you will lose and i have many example of it well okay wait uh, something i'm thinking about here is do collectors talk to each other like so do you all like talk to other people who have collections and be like oh you know we're investing in or no oh, sorry i shouldn't say that we're buying <laughs> So it's those were like, or do you all keep these kind of like close to the vest? Do you like keep the people that you're interested in secret or do you all sort of share information between collectors? No, I mean, all the time. I do this all the time. It's my main topic. Like every hour I speak with, with friends. I mean, most of my friends are not like all of them. I mean, most of my friends, I love to have friends, artists, friends, creators, friends, galleries, friends. And then I have a bunch of friends who are collectors. So we always confront ourselves all the time about, ah, what artists are you looking at it right now? What are you reading about it, about that? Can you suggest me something? Always, always. I mean, and we, of course, we do gossip about it. We do, we, we want to hear the, ru the late rumors about this art. Ah, you know, this artist is dating this other artist. Oh my God, really? Yes, yes. You know, and all of this big fuss around nothing. What is like the most passionate thing that I'm, Lacking the most to speak about is about the work. I mean, let's speak about this artist's work. And I really like to, the, the, the best part for me is to describe a work. When I have to describe a work to a person who is not like familiar with an artist, I mean, it's like the most interesting part for me because it's like dreaming. And let this other person that is listening to, to it dream about this work, dream about this artist. And somehow, little by little, get this person, get inside their universe, which, which, is, which is this. At the end of the day, I mean, an artist really like, each artist has got his own universe, which is a dreamy universe, a very personal universe and precious one. Something that I like to ask collectors about is like, so I've, I've read some stuff about you and about your desire for the legacy and, and how your, your art will be sort of thought of after your, you, you stop collecting. So after you pass away and things like this, but like, so the question though that I have is like, how do you define your collection? So like, do you have like a time period, a style, a, like, or, or, or a movement? Like, do you have like a thing that sort of creates a cohesive collection in your mind that you hope it'll be defined by later? I think that a collection is a very personal space. You know, it tells you a lot about the person that is collecting. So for me, each work that we have in our collection, tell me 
something about the specific event related to the acquisition of this very specific work tell me something about the artist I was engaging with. And each work has added something to our collection and to our life. So I always see our collection as a whole and has a continuous narrative. It's something that will never end. Here we will be alive, but even afterwards, you know, as I told you before, I think that what will survive after us will be the narrative that all these works together have built. And uh, it's a pretty much a dialogue that also like goes beyond the time and history, because, I mean, still there are in our collection uh, these pieces of the historical collection of the father of my husband, which dated back to the 70s. We're talking about like Mario Schifano, Renato Buttuso, Rot- Nimmo Rotella. Can Mimmo Rotella have a dialogue with, I don't know, like Jota Castro or Ser Serpas or Zandile Shabalala or Simfiu Anzu, but these artists that are now 20 years old, yes, they can have it. And they have a pretty interesting dialogue between of them. I don't know what Mimmo Rotella can say to Simfiu Anzu, but when they will meet, I mean, they're taking a coffee together. I don't know. Maybe they have different tastes of coffee, maybe. I don't know. But still, they have a very productive dialogue. And, you know... Going back to my background, what Jean-Luc Godard was talking about is that to him, what, what he was interested in was that two images, very like different one from each other, being like to the other, so with the montage, they will create another image, so a third image, which is not the first time, which is not the, the second one, but it's like the third one, which is the mix of the two of them. And it's really like the idea of the two of them together. So what I think that what's left when you have this encounter is a third idea that will exist by itself, but it will really like be the core of what we are talking about. So so like this dialogue over the time, over the space that like art can build, no matter what, where it has been done or by whom, but really like being, again, put it in the center, the value of the work. If the work has got the value, it will like overcome everything and it will... It, no matter how great the heart is, you, you are confronted with, will always hold on and will create with this montage an idea which is meaningful and will, uh, will, will stay forever, you know, will stay forever. Generation of people will still understand and create this connection and understand the meaning and the importance of it. Well, it's hard. Like my parents have nowhere near a collection like yours, but my parents have like a small collection that they've done over the past 50 years. And they, that like we were recently talking about like, you know, when they start downsizing, need to move into whatever, like as they get older kind of thing and like leave their large house, what happened to their collection? And they were amazed about like which pieces I said, like, oh, I, I really want to inherit this piece, but I don't want to inherit that piece. And, and they were fascinated because I kept telling them, I was like, the reason why I love this piece is not necessarily because the piece itself is inherently somehow, um, you know, beautiful, powerful, effective, but it's because I have a story that associates with it. I had some experience in my life relevant to that piece that somehow meant was meaningful to me. And so therefore I want to inherit that piece because it means something to me, not just because of the work by itself. Yeah, I completely see your point. I mean, of course, 
I mean, I am attached to all the pieces that we have in our collection. And every time we acquire a new piece, it's my like favorite piece because, of course, it's the last one. So it's like the youngest baby somehow. So I have to take care of it and be involved in it. But still, there are two or three pieces in the collection that I feel attached to, as you said, because I have a story to tell about these and a story that really like goes beyond the time as well. For example, there is this piece by Leila Dar, which is an artist from California, pretty famous, and Europe mostly, actually. He had a major show in Berlin and all over Europe. And it's a photograph of a series that he has done of his mother. So he photographed his mother in her bedroom. She was like completely naked, and he asked then to a group of kids to draw on this photograph. So they were kids that didn't really like have a perception of sexuality as we have it as adults, you know. And, and it's pretty interesting because each kid react differently, and then not all of them hide, you know, the intimate part of his mother. For example, the one we have, and he's done 12 of this photograph in the series, we were pretty, I, I say, we were pretty lucky to buy the last one. And I was like, we have to buy this because it's like, really like the last choice we have to buy this work and I have to have it because it's so important. Like, it's very representative of the artistic practice of Leila Dar. And so we, we could buy it, fortunately, in an art fair actually in Copenhagen from Pilar Correa's gallery. And our picture is named after the kids that was intervening in the photo. It's named Charlotte. And Charlotte draws, actually, draws near the vagina of the mother of Leila Dar. So you don't see, actually, the vagina. So And, it, and this picture is in our bedroom. So it, it's in a quite intimate space of our house. But I always look at it, and I always find it very romantic, very personal. You know, the story related to this piece, for me, is the relationship with my mother, you know, which is something like... I mean, I didn't have this type of relationship, of course, with my mother. I mean, I, I'm not an artist and she wasn't like a prostitute. <laughs> and so it's pretty different. But still, the power of the artwork is this one that at the same time, it's very personal. So it tells you the story of the artist itself. But then at the same time, it is pretty general. You know, we always have and had a very complicated relationship with our mother, you know. I mean, somehow I have this relationship, you know, with my mother that can be complicated, you know, most of the time. So I pretty much relate to this picture and makes me dream and makes me reflect about the way we deal with our everyday life and our everyday relationship, you know. Somehow with a soft sadness, you know, with a soft sadness, because in the picture, the mother is laying on this bed and there is this pillow with these flowers. So it gives you really like uh, an idea and a feeling of softness, you know, but at the same time, soft sadness, because, I mean, the mother of Leila Dara had the very, I mean, difficult life at the end and also like his child, I mean, they really like suffered from it and influenced so much his artistic practice, you know. So there is this soft sadness that really like gives me, you know, the possibility to always rethink 
about the relationship that I have with my mother. And I have to say that every people that come here, at the end, when I say, what do you think about this piece? And then I tell them the story. They always say, hi. Oh. You know, and after we are done, we talk, oh, you know, like my mother. And then come up this relationship with the mother. And so I found it like very powerful and fascinating that, you know, it's kind of like a general feeling towards towards your artwork. And another work I... I'm pretty much attached to is a neon by the collective Claire Fontaine. The neon says, Malamor mio non muore, but my love doesn't die, which is, of course, a very romantic sentence, but then they were referring to the partisan. So it's title of a partisan book from the, after the Second World War, this book was telling the story of this partisan. They were resilient, you know, they were not like giving up after the Second World War, protecting their families, protecting their beliefs, you know. I found a very powerful statement for me. And then it's also like, my husband, of course, is like a collect. He has got a collector heart. So when he proposed me to marry him, he didn't give me like a ring. He said, "Listen, baby, I'm gonna give you as a gift this work." It was this this work, Balamor Mianomor, this neon. So of course, I can relate a lot to this uh, the, the romantic side of it. Yeah. Okay. Wait. You brought up the whole stuff about you and your husband. I'm fascinated with. Who wears the pants in that relationship as far as buying artwork? So like if you decide you love a piece, it, does he just go, yes, whatever, honey? Or is this uh, mutual discussions and you all agree to buy something? Or, you know, so like it's a very interesting dynamic of like a husband and wife that collect actively together. Who Who makes the decisions? Actually, it's always like a big argument for us, you know, <laughs> like... We can discuss even like very late at night, which were even like of the artists. Okay, we agree on an artist, then we'll may also we take like one month to decide which work of this artist to buy, you know? So it's always really like a confrontation, uh, uh, mutual support or mutual like punching, you know, somehow with, with words, of course, <laughs> punching words and yeah, and it's also very, it's vital for us to do this because we love to discuss about art. I mean, it's, uh, it's our favorite topic. So if we don't have these, not, we will not collect anymore. So, of course, there is sometimes that I push forward and artist more and he's like, no, but really, are you sure? And then sometimes, some of the times, he's the one. No, 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 you have to be, you know, you have to trust me. This is the right one and whatever. So... But it's, it's like a relationship, you know, it's like a normal relationship. You always have to be in a, on, on a point of, you have to reach a point of encounter, you know, between normal argument, even if you want to like eat pizza or pasta, they decide, okay, we eat both of them, pizza and pasta together. Or you say, okay, honey, tonight we're going to eat pizza, tomorrow pasta. So there is kind of like democracy. Let's call it democracy. Right, but who wins more often in those arguments? I mean, I mean, I have to be honest, he has a very good high. He has a very good high. So I must say that most of the time, I mean, I follow him. When he's like pretty sure about something, I say, okay, let's do it. Well, it's interesting. Okay, wait, does it break down like, 
like does it break down like this like do you, like maybe you find an artist but he chooses the work of the artist oftentimes like does it is there sort of a separation of power sort of a, how you come up with it no also this one comes from both sides come from both sides so we propose the artist we are kind of like we're working like a mini board you know of people so like each week we come up with different names and then we discuss it and then we choose the right work and then we discuss to the art with the artist as well so most of the time the artist is like the third person that comes into the discussion and also let us agree on what to buy and why i am i must say this yes yes for sure and it, and it's a good eye because you, we always say that the artist has the, the, this third eye, you know, and, and so it's like maybe the most valuable comment that we can have at the end of the day. Okay, I'm always interested in that. Like, so, okay, when you go into an artist's studio, I'll make this personal. So, like, I have this thing that, like, when, when uh, I have a studio visit, I show them, like, let's say a dozen pieces. Usually the one that I, I hate is the one that the, the collector likes. And usually the one that I love, the collector doesn't connect with at all. And I'm always fascinated by like, so like if I were in a studio visit with you and I said, this is my most meaningful piece, would you give it more weight or would you be like, I don't care what you think? <laughs> like, I like this other one. Very good question, actually. I mean, at the end of the day, if you want to buy this piece, buy it. You're free of it. I mean, if I have to buy, I have to decide. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's my money and it's my taste and I have to have it hang on the wall for the rest of my life. So see it every day, you have to like it. No, I mean, like, uh, that's why we had in, in the past and we, we have a relationship with Art Advisor but then, as well with them, it's not them suggesting us the artists. It's us asking them, but, you know, the gal, maybe they have more connection than us because they are in the business. And we ask them, can you connect with the galleries? Can you, you know, ask if they have available works? They can, they can work as a filter rather than proposing us artists to buy, you know, because it's very personal taste. Instead, I think that when people rely totally on art advisor first of all i don't think they have this big taste second of all not really and second of all i think they're doing it only for for as an investment no you don't say yeah <laughs> i say so yeah 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 so of course art advisor are important but as i told you as an instrument to water up your network and really like to be as as fair as you can be with galleries, but really like to not advise on what to buy, which is kind of like controsenso and like no sense things related to art so to art advisor, but for us it's like this. All right, two last questions. Ecology. You brought it up. I've run into this uh, time and time again. Being in academia, we try to be more ecological as professors to, you know, in the schools and, and smart with the, the things that we use. Define like being responsible ecologically from your perspective. Ecologic from, from my perspective is, uh, for example, like join this coalition that are growing, that are arising now, for example, the Green Coalition from galleries, 
So I really advise all the galleries to join this coalition because it's very simple to reduce the carbon emission of a gallery. Already a gallery can have very low carbon emission. Moreover, I think that the most impactful thing is transport, logistic. So logistic meaning that if you have to do a transport from the States to Europe, you can, if you want to like low, lower your carbon emission, you should use a boat rather than a plane, which will take, of course, more time, but listen, it's going to be safer for the worst. And it, this is going to be tested. It's, it's already tested by a lot of galleries from the States. So doing like the opposite, shipping works from Europe to the States. And they have tested that it's safer. Of course, you have to plan it in advance, but you always plan transport in advance. For example, for the show I'm creating in June, the transport will be already happening in March. So you always plan in advance. So it's not like this big, big change if you plan like one month more in advance. But still, it's cheaper. It's cheaper as well. And it's safer. And it's safer for the work because it's like dedicated. They will have their own space. No one will like walk on the crate of the work causing like the destroyment of it. So why not doing it? Being a collector, of course, we, we travel less and less now, but we are pretty forced to do it. But I think that in the future, really, believe me, I think that everyone of us will use again more and more the train because the airplane has been really like toxic. I don't know. I mean, really like the way of traveling with the airplane is becoming toxic. And even more being in an airport now, it's a mess. It's a total mess, total madness. So I'd rather, even if I have to do like two or three more hours of travel, I'd rather take the train for sure, 100%. Well, I mean, because like when I think of ecological, other sort of two sides to that, like big collectors that fly around to all the art fairs shouldn't use private jets. They should fly commercial. That's one kind of thing on the extreme version of it. But then I wonder, like as a collector, does it matter to you, like, as an artist, and if I'm using ecologically smart materials or resources, like is that an and if does that affect your choices and selections? Sure, I mean, I think that of course, if you talk about paintings, a lot of artists nowadays are using like organic colors or colors that are reused from past colors that have been like kind of like wasted somehow. So, I mean, it's really like a general practice, you know. And of course, there are some artists that are doing like works specifically on it. And we have works that are dealing with this, but more like in a theoretical way. So talking about the subject rather than like using maybe what you're saying, like ecological or reusable materials. So it didn't happen still in our collection, but you never know. Of course, we are interested in the subject, but more like in the practicality of it. So as a painter using already like material that have been already used or in videos that talks about the subject, but in like in a parallel way, in a more complicated other way I'm in a more layered way way you know I don't like um, what you're saying maybe like for me it sounds like a didascalic work you know I don't buy work that talks about ecology for, for, for the sake of ecology you know like it's not the work of art at the end of the day it's a didascalic explanation and dissertation about quality which is fine 
I don't think that art should do this, you know, I, art should give me like something more than that. Sorry if I... <laughs> no, it's totally legit. I mean, well, the reason why I ask is because like, I used to, I have a friend who used to run a printmaking studio and a printmaking of course uses a lot of water and it, you know, it's very wasteful in that way. Um, but then there's like the, oil, the choice of using like oil paint versus like the newer, like vegetable inks and things like this. Like, so like, you know, it, like does, when you talk about ecology, are you talking about the, in the production of the work or sort of in the part of the, the, the industry, you know, so like, like you're saying shipping and things like this. What's the important part to you? I mean, each part is important because each part uh, contributes uh, to the final outcome, you know. It's super important that from the gallery part, uh, you, like, initiate this process, which is not... I mean, it's it's simple, but then at the same time, you have to work on it. And then from the artist's point of view, uh, maybe, you know, like, these organic colors sometimes are ex more expensive than the, the more toxic one. So not all the artists at the first level can do these choices. So maybe this, again, will be a responsibility of the galleries who is commissioning the work to let, you know, to let them have the medium, the instrument, in order to be uh, eco-sustainable, you know, more ecological, eco-green, green-friendly somehow. So, you know, it's both parts. It's not the one part is divided to the other. I think that uh, everything should work smoothly in order to have a greener outcome, let's say. All right. Three artists that you think are somehow noteworthy or you want people to pay more attention to at this moment. Mm, this is a big responsibility. This is a very big responsibility. You can do more than three. That's fine. I just chose the number three because I like the number three. All right. All right. All right. All right. So I think that there is an artist. So first of all, a collective. Collective of artists that I was talking previously. So Apparatus 22, a Romanian collective. There are three artists, one brother and one sister, and then third girl, Maria. They do an amazing work, and I think that is still underestimated in the States. They're pretty much in Europe known, but not in the States. And I think they need to have a worldwide recognition because they're not only artists, they are wider than that they really like to reflect with their work on what does it mean to be an artist within the art system so they do very critical work about the art system that i think that uh, it's very useful for us because it really like get us reflect on what we are living and maybe give us the instrument of understanding what has to be done in order to let things change to support more the artist i mean the aesthetics of their work is super appealing and super interesting. Every time they use different medium, and you have to imagine that they come from the fashion world, so aesthetics is, is very important for them. So never we, we should never think that if a work has got a strong message, has to be like, I mean, hardly work, never. I mean, aesthetic always goes with the, with the haptic, you know, with the, with the content. The second artist that I really much like, specific moment, is Zandila Shabalala. She's an artist from South Africa, from Johannesburg. She's only 22. 
two years old. She always, when, she, when we speak, she always tell me that uh, she she's like the student of, oh, an ideal, because she wasn't, ideal student of Carrie James Marshall, because she used like the same black to depict blackness, which is something very powerful, I think. Of course, she represents the human figure in a way which is very voluptuous, very glamorous, very feminine, without being ashamed of her femininity, which I found very, very honest and very true to me. And she, what she's able to do as well is to contextualize the woman naked figure. Most of the time, they're naked figure in her context, so, so in the South African context. So again, within this wild, sumptuous nature that, I mean, has to deal a lot with their history, with their tradition, with their roots. So very powerful work for me. Another artist, and the third artist that I'm going to say is Victoria Nulle, again a woman, She's from United States. Now she's living in New Jersey with her parents so due to the COVID. But she uses acrylics. She works with painting acrylics most of the time. She's pretty much connected with this feeling of nostalgia because all of the time she represents objects of her childhood somehow. Toys, most of the time toys. And the interesting thing she, she tells me, she always tells me about her work is that recently... Her father took from, from the canteen uh, her old toys and she recognized them and she also remembered then what, what, she, what fascinated her about her toys was not, was not like playing with them, but looking at them. And so, I mean, that's how she became an artist, you know, wanting to represent the object that, that was surrounding her and that are still part of her everyday life and tells you something about a generation of artists that are so like intimate, you know, so ref reflecting about themselves, being super aware of what's going on, you know, like around them. I mean, being in the United States, now they were like super concerned about politics, about social issues, about gender issues, and, and, and you see that in, in their paintings, but you see as well this very intimate part, this universe, if you think about the United States, you know, this also individualistic you know, way of relating to the world, the world outside, and uh, which is, which for me, it's pretty interesting and it's funny. I mean, her paintings are pretty funny. And for me, another very important part of art is that has to make me laugh sometimes. It makes me, me, you know, make me have feelings about what I'm living as, uh, as an emotion. Any other topics that you'd care to talk about that we didn't touch on or that you want to expand on? Mm, no, I think we were pretty much like in depth uh, in a lot of topics and it was a pretty interesting conversation, actually. Marvelous. Well, then thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. <laughs>